iTunes presents Meet the Author. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Apple Store here on Regent Street. My name is Ben. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. I'm very excited. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, the gentleman that we have here tonight is uh, legendary. Um, not l yes, in restaurants, <laughs> indeed. No, he's also a heckler, I've just discovered. Um, not leastly because uh, of the amazing uh, films he's made and written and the incredible work he's done as a producer uh, as a makeup artist when he first obviously was cutting his teeth, but also as an inspiration. One of the, I've read quite a lot about him uh, to prepare for this. One of, the, one of the things, the sort of overriding feelings is you know, his enthusiasm, his excitement, his kind of joy of life, his joy of the creative process. And really, at Apple, I mean, we're all about that. And for me, you know, to meet somebody who is enthusiastic about you know, life and about the things he does as I am is a real privilege. So right already I feel like my evening's been made, so I'm very happy about that. Everyone knows his films, Hellboy, available on iTunes. Also, uh, obviously, think films like Kronos, Blade 2. A lot of people actually um, will often miss Blade 2. I was talking to my girlfriend earlier on. She was like, wow, you know, he did Blade 2, you know. <laughs> slightly sort of out of context, but a, a really awesome film. So um, I'm sure you'll be familiar with his work. Upcoming, um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Frankenstein were two of the... And I again, I've, I've heard some interviews with you and your passion about those projects. And I'm very excited to see what he comes up with. And of course, The Hobbit, uh, which, uh, as I say, everyone is talking about at the moment, which is very, very exciting as well. We're here tonight to talk about all of that stuff, but also to talk about a book that he's recently co-written called The Strain, uh, with an author called Chuck Hogan. It's a diet book. Yes. Um, by all accounts, it's very scary. It's a very scary book. And uh, apparently, it's not sexy vampires. This is, no. You've gone to some length to emphasize this. So I'm guessing Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise won't be in the casting process. So um, without further ado, uh, let me introduce you, uh, Guillermo del Toro. Hola, hola. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. In the book, you'll find diet tips on how to be size 52 and not look it. <laughs> Involve eating human flesh, by any chance. Flesh. <laughs> that's yes. good. That's Let's a diet. We'll get on to that later, perhaps. So um, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. It's great. Um, one of the first things I was interested about is when you're um, writing a book, obviously you've written loads of screenplays, and we're all very familiar with that. How was the process different when it came to actually writing a book rather than a screenplay? Well, you know, a screenplay is uh, incredibly constraining because you're writing in a present tense. You're uh, only talking about things that are happening right in front of the eyes of the audience. And you have to, uh, if you try to adjectivize or you try to qualify or you try to use metaphor or introspection, you're kind of screwed. You're going to have to say things that are demonstrable by uh, sound and image. You know, so you, uh, I use this example often is, if you say there was an air of manners in the room, that's bullshit. You cannot put that in the, um, I mean, I hope the podcast is not. Swear away. We're mad for it. Don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, so you, you, you cannot do that. 
you have to describe how you're going to create that air of menace. You're going to say, um, uh, Joe enters a room, uh, there's very low light, a humming sound in the background, camera pushes slowly. You have to be talking about that. So you, you, the resources, uh, literary resources for a screenplay are incredibly tight. They're very, very few. Yeah. Uh, whereas when you're writing fiction, you can do all of the above and much more. You Amazing. can use metaphor, introspection, so on and so forth. It's quite fantastic. No budget. Yeah, no I was going to say, it must no be so liberating. You write, they walk into um, Wembley Stadium and it's packed. Yeah. You've just written those lines. It's done. No, no, no asshole actors. Nothing. No, no, no problem. <laughs> No problem whatsoever. It's We're going to talk about Ron Perlman yeah. in a second. So that's, that's not great. That's a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I can really, really see the difference and how that would uh, that would Im impact the process. I mean, you co-wrote this yeah. uh, with uh, with Chuck Hogan. Yes. Um, my understanding is you did it in a slightly weird way. Was it sort of it was like email or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've written um, and co-written about seventeen screenplays. Uh, six or seven are solo. But the rest are co-written with somebody. Sometimes right. uh, two people, uh, like Devil's Wagon, I co-wrote with two two people in Spain. And uh, The Hobbit is written at by four people. You know, is uh, Peter, Fran, Philippa, and myself. And uh, the process is uh, is the same. It's pretty easy as long as you're not pressured about yeah. it. You know, uh, we get together in a room, we work, and then we email pages. Yeah. and allow each other to take a stab at it, edit them, and uh, Chuck and I work like that. We met in New York. I had, I had been working for a while before I met with him, and then I gave him all the material I have. He reacted to it, he came on board, and uh, you know we started sending uh, chapters that I wrote, chapters that he wrote, back and forth on the email. Amazing, yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. It's really frustrating this because now I want to ask him a million more questions about that. But anyway, let's move on. Um, so uh, Ron Perlman, who we've just mentioned, has, has no, read. I, I said asshole. Actually. Yeah, yeah. You said as well as that, and then he's I, a, I brought him a in. wonderful human being. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. I so, love him. Yeah. Well, this is this is clear. Um, in fact, you, you went so far as to say, according to IMDb, that Ron Perlman has the sexiest male voice this side of Barry White. Yes, he so, is. You know, what more can you say? It is. Um, it's, a, it's adorable, and uh, I think I have a man crush on him. <laughs> <laughs> it's allowed. So what I'm interested to know is, I mean, what has he brought to the book? I mean, he's reading the book on the iTunes store. Uh, you download through the iTunes store. Um, you know, uh, uh, did you hear that voice w when you were writing? Or yeah, actually, actually, that was Philippa's suggestion. Uh, we were working uh, on The Hobbit, and I was saying, I really, I think Ron is enough of my friend that I didn't want to <laughs> make him sit. And uh, it's 13 hours and a half. It's a lot, a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading. And I know the man, and I know he likes to eat and drink and walk around <laughs> in <laughs> underwear, and he doesn't like to work that much. As so do we all, so I, th okay. I, thought, uh, I thought, well, sh you know, she said, what about Ron Perlman? And of course it was logical. <laughs> it was Ron Perlman. But I, I called him, and uh, he agreed to do it. I mean, he's my favorite, one of my favorite uh, human beings. And one of my favorite actors, and he agreed to do it. And uh, what he brings to it is him. Yeah. He can uh, act and overact like nobody else. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, for me, again, that's on a personal level, it's very heartwarming. You know, you build these relationships. And I've noticed that throughout all of your work, you know, you, you, 
you're diverse and loyal in kind of equal measure. You know, you're always trying new things. And, and again, that's amazing. And one Thank other you. very weird question, which is, while I was going through IMDb, it said that apparently you did a voiceover in Quantum of Solace. Yeah. Is that true? Yes, we were the only Mexicans they could find in London. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, there was uh, Alfonso Cuaron and I were post-producing. I was doing Hellboy 2 in the same facility they were doing Quantum of Solace. And uh, they said, you know, uh, there are two Mexicans down there. And <laughs> <laughs> they called us and, uh, and I, I, you know, I, I play uh, two parts. I play a rich uh, lord of, 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 like, landlord talking about the water. And then I say, I'm a policeman that says, careful, he's, he has a gun. Oh, my God. That's and, but I, I went home that night and I said, well, I just had my scene with Daniel Craig. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm going to be yeah, scaring yeah, the Blu-ray yeah. listening for The that. wife was happy. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, you, when's she coming here for dinner? You know, as we say in Mexico, let him heat the boiler, I'll take the shower. <laughs> <laughs> okay, quickly moving on. So, um, thank you. That was awesome. I'm sure you guys are bursting with questions. Who's going to be first? We got arm waving someone. They, they are not bursting. No, I've got loads more questions. So they are shy. Many, by all means, go for it. Hello, sir. This gentleman over here. Amazing. Hi, Thanks for your, for your film contribution and your artistic contribution. Uh, how, how did you first get into films? Well, I started making movies when I was eight. You know, my dad had a Super 8 camera, and. Uh, I started just shooting my, my toys and crude plasticine makeup on them and making them making monster movies with my Planet of the Apes figures and, and whatever figures I could get, you know, throwing um, uh, my sister's Barbies from the rooftop and, you know, the normal stuff. And then, uh, and then I, <laughs> I, I continued until, until now. It's, I think a director, you know, you can qualify it then. You can be a good or a bad director or a stinky director, but uh, to direct, all you have to do is direct the movies. You know, you have to grab it and do it. People mm. say, how do I become a director? You know, just go out and direct something. Whatever it is, do it and practice. And, and with time, you'll be, I cannot say you're going to be a great director, but you're going to be a director for sure. <laughs> Your family will know. <laughs> <laughs> there he is again. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you for your thank films as well. Um, I was just wondering, did you find, I mean, you, s you spoke about the process of writing the book. Do you think you were writing, was it, did it come easy to you? Easier than writing a script, for instance? What, what did you it's feel? Not, it's not about easy. It's uh, when you, when you, uh, when you f are faced with a change, uh, on the beginning you go overboard, you know, you, you really are enjoying it, and then you take a look back and you have to go and do the most work on that first part of the process. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, I, I was writing even more purple than, than, than I would have allowed myself. You know, I became the purple prose of Pyra and of Cairo. You know, I was, I was uh, doing this uh, pulp uh, Raymond Chandler-esque uh, stuff. And, and you know, you go back there and you say, I was too enthusiastic. It's almost like the first films. When you do your first films, you, you always go at it thinking, when my short film comes out, the world will change, and there will be pa peace and harmony and unity, and the world will uh, align. You know, and in reality, you do the sh short, and in the process, you try to survive. And what comes out is usually a piece of crap that is showable, <laughs> but barely. And, but you, what you learn is enormous. 
same thing. You know, I started and I was, oh, this is fantastic. And then I went back and I said, oh, my God, I got to rewrite all that again. So it's not easier. Did you find it harder to edit and to cut down what you had written? Because in the film, obviously, you have to do that. No, no, I, I'm merciless with my stuff and other people's stuff. <laughs> I think it's really, you know, my friends and, and I show each other Alejandro or Alfonso. We show each other our films because we know we're going to be brutal mm. with each other. And the same with uh, Chuck Hogan. He was brutal with me and I was, oh, I, I was really brutal with him. So we, we know, as long as you're not precious about it and you know that if it's worth it, you're going to defend it and you're going to win. Thank yeah. you. It's Thank amazing you. advice. I so agree. Uh, uh, any other questions? We've got, yes, over here. Two, maybe. Guillermo, the, the vampires in this book are truly, truly terrifying. Would you talk to us about how you came up with the biology of the vampire? Yes, I, I've been reading, uh, for some strange reason, I had a very peculiar childhood, and, uh, and I, don't ask me how, but at, at, at around age seven, I was already a voracious reader. My father, um, when, he, when he made some money, he heard that one of the things gentlemen did was have a library. So he bought uh, an encyclopedia of art, an encyclopedia of medicine, <laughs> and a regular encyclopedia. And as a kid, I, I read the three of them entirely. And at age seven, I swore I have every disease known to man. <laughs> I, I really was a, the tiniest hypochondriac. I thought I had syphilis, leprosy, <laughs> brain tumors. And I, I, I kept saying, oh, I have the symptoms. I'm going to die tomorrow. And I became obsessed by the betrayal of the body at that early age. Mm. I was a very weird kid. <laughs> at, 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 at a very early age, I became obsessed by that. And uh, I was reading already horror stuff at age seven. And I, uh, at about age seven to 10, I don't know exactly when. I don't have the book with me, but I still have it. I stumbled upon a paperback that was called Living Vampires, Dead Vampires. And it was an anthology of folklore and oral tradition in Eastern Europe of vampirism. And uh, I read uh, one passage was that uh, in Poland, uh, some of the vampire uh, varieties, they don't have a te uh, canine teeth. They have a stinger that comes out of the tongue. And at that early age, it, it, it struck me. And I spent 37 years trying to figure out that biology and that anatomy. So the stuff in the book that is explained, all the gross, incredibly detailed anatomical stuff is stuff I've been thinking about for all those decades until I, I, I put some in Kronos, I put some on Blade Two, but I was able to put all of it here. And I didn't, you know, up until the 80s, I was interested very much in reading about the romantic vampire. But uh, after the 80s, it became overabundant to my taste, and I started feeling it was, I, I grew jaded about all these guys that really seemed to come out of a Harlequin novel, yeah. a, a gothic romance. They were essentially Fabio with fangs. And, and, and I stopped finding them interesting. And you know, I, I really was yearning for a throwback at the scary, brutal, nasty, undead creature that vampire is also in literature. So we went at it. Amazing. Do we have a second question? Just because you're sitting next to each other, it's still loud. Do you think The Strain would work well as a movie? And if so, who would you choose to direct it? 
You know, I, I really kept the, the audiovisual rights of the book as one of the first steps because I, I don't think they, they it's, it's three books. And the arc of the characters is, is uh, plotted through the three books. So whatever you read here is a third of what, what I want the characters to go through. And I didn't want uh, having a studio condensing three books in an hour and a half, uh, you know, compressing it and changing it in that way. Uh, I, I would love to, to find a way to find other permutations for it, but I don't want to do it right away. I don't want to do it at, at somebody else's pay. And I certainly don't want them turning the three books into a single movie because I think some, some narrative works uh, benefit from the elongated uh, timeline and the elongated uh, dramatic line. Not least The Hobbit, of course. Me? Uh, do we have another question down here? Someone, did you have a question? I have a question. This lady here has a question? And then we'll, we'll this one and then. Hey, you just talked about how when you wrote that you've got the next two books to come. So uh, sorry, I, I cannot hear you sorry, very well. You said Syphilis did get me. <laughs> <laughs> I was seven, I didn't know better. <laughs> you said that you've got the, you've thought of the books and you've got, you know how you want it. Yeah. Is that because of the way you film? And like you've got Hellboy 1, you've got Hellboy 2, uh -huh. and everything comes in, this is a trilogy, I assume. Well, the, Hel Hel Hellboy 1, we had no idea there, I mean. No, no, but I mean as a concept, it's nicer to have yeah. a book as the same film rather than have it as book one, two, and three as one I film. I see, I see. No, uh, we, I, uh, I originally, it came, uh, you know, the idea originally came from, I was watching The Wire, which I adore. I think it's the best writing in audiovisual medium in 10, 15 years. And I kept thinking, wouldn't it be great to have this sort of uh, crusty bureaucratic reality uh, set faced with an overpowering force coming from a completely unexpected side. And, you know, I thought of the 747 stopping in the middle of the runway, and uh, everybody on board was dead, and, uh, and all of a sudden the door opened from the inside, and that was the beginning. I, I wrote a Bible, what they call a Bible, for three limited uh, seasons for cable, because I like uh, cable writing which dies when it needs to die, as opposed to when the ratings are so abysmal that they don't want to do it anymore. You know, and, and I went to the channel I had a deal with at that time, and I pitched uh, the, the arc. You know, it was Fox, uh, and I pitched them the story. And uh, they said, oh, we, we, we would love to have a vampire series, but can you make it a comedy? <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I turned around, validated my parking ticket, and get the fuck out of there. You know? and, uh, and uh, and what happened uh, is, I, I you know the older you get, the less you want people screwing up with what you do. You 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 really get a little more touchy. And I, and I felt, why am I pursuing this? I love the characters, I love the story, and I'm gonna go from one channel to the next until I find a place that wants to do it, but wants the main character to have a, a robot dog or uh, to have a child named named Skippy or uh, you know, they have a bad cave or whatever the fuck they want will be wrong. And, and, and I felt, you know, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to try to write it as fiction. I've always written. I've written short stories. I've written uh, a, a, an, an, quite a bit of a screenplay done. And, uh, you know, I, I knew I needed a partner because 
my New York looks like anything but New York when I do it in the movies, and my, my dialogue has its own rhythm, and I needed someone that had a feel for procedural stuff, you know, like a thriller, uh, procedural stuff. And I read Chuck's novel, I Love Prince of Thieves, which I highly recommend you check. It's a fantastic noir. Stephen King named it one of the best 10 books of the year a couple of years ago. And it is worth it uh, for you to seek it out. And, and I started the partnership with him. And, and you know, I, I think I w I'm very happy because nobody screwed with it. You know, we, we were able to preserve it the way I saw it. Does that mean that you, would you, as a director, would you shoot it with film or would you shoot it digitally? Oh, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm a really, really slow, uh, I, uh, about film, I really want to stay on film uh, for as long as I can, which won't be long because it's really changing rapidly. It's a romantic thing, you know, it's like uh, I'm driving perhaps an antiquated model, but I love it. In the same way that I, I still have my, uh, my power book <laughs> and I work on my power book, even if it's uh, three years older, I love it and it's full of unidentified spots and bumps and it's really nasty, but I, I like it. Yeah, amazing. Great question, thank you so much. We had another question. Yes. There was a lady and then this gentleman. Uh, first of all, I love your work. And thank you. I think I know a few things about you that a lot of people might not know. Through, really? Um, oh my God. <laughs> are, there f are, are, are there photographs? <laughs> Just through, <laughs> through um, Sheila Wells. You know, um, makeup artist Sheila Wells. She um, is one of my teachers. And she loves you and is always talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, yeah, she just told me a random fact that when she met you, that you had quite big hands. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good thing. Well, they, they, they are. I also have an enormous head. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my question is um, about when you did makeup. Because mm -hmm. I'm training to be a makeup artist, yeah. and I was just wondering, did you ever consider keeping uh, on the path of being, doing makeup as a career, or did you always want to direct eventually? No, I was I was already doing short films back then, and and uh, what happened is nobody nobody was doing makeup effects in my hometown, you know, and I, and I was an okay sculptor, and I was an okay illustrator, and I taught myself makeup effects and. All of a sudden, people were looking at my effects and saying, could you do it on my short film or on my feature film for free, which is extremely convenient. And I started doing it for free, and I bought more equipment, and eventually I had a company, and I said, as soon as I have my feature film, I'll close the company. And it took uh, many, many years. I made my first feature, Kronos. My company did all the makeup effects and mechanical effects, and then we closed the company. You know, so I... I I still have allergic reaction to some of the chemicals because I never wore a mask. I'm one of those guys that go, ah, screw this shit, you know. And now, you know, I, if I smell alginate or gypsum, I, I, my nose clogs horribly. You know, I Would you have any advice for someone like me just trying to start makeup? out? Yeah. I think learn sculpture and, uh, sculpture and learn uh, fine drawing, life yeah. drawing. I mean, if you know how to draw, you know how to sculpt. is is really simple like, uh, like that. If you can do life life uh, drawing, you are really good at it. You learn anatomy, 
you know, and, and you can sculpt. And if you can sculpt, you can mold. And if you can mold, you can do makeup effects. Yeah. So essentially it's that. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thank you so much. I have to say as well, on a personal note, uh, you, you know, your films, are, uh, you're one of the few directors, perhaps yourself and Ridley Scott, where I actually turn the volume down and just look at the visuals because they're just so sumptuous. And oh, thank you. It must be hard in some ways. I mean, how much involvement do you still have with a maker? But you still say, no, 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 oh, yeah. paint it this way. Well, well, I'm not quite like that, but I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> and I do, I do come in with my calipers into the sculpting room and they want to stick them up my butt and kick me. <laughs> but you know, I have uh, immunity, so I'm, I'm always torturing them about proportion and it's incredibly easy, for example, in a full body sculpture, most people screw up proportion. Yeah. And you know, not that I can do it better than the guys I hire, <coughs> but I can critique them better. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. It's quite evil. You know, if you know, if you know enough and you, you know, uh, they cannot fool you technically, you know, I, I, oh, yeah. I always say I won't hire somebody that can do as good as I do. Somebody <laughs> has to do much, much better than I would yeah. do. No, I understand. And, and thank you for that, because it is stunning. Another question. Hello there. Hello. Um, as Ben was saying, you're a very, uh, very visual director. Yes. Uh, to be honest, I think you're, you're one of the most uh, fantastic visualists in the One has to compensate for yeah. shortcomings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And I know that you, you filled a notebook uh, over the years with yeah. drawings and things for Pan's Labyrinth yeah, yeah, and yeah. all of this. Uh, and from what I've seen of it, it's beautiful artwork in there. Thank and you. I, I was just wondering, is this something you were ever interested in going into, drawing, painting? And well, I'm, I'm self-taught, you yeah. know, so I, 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 I taught myself to use whatever I could afford. Like after Kronos, literally, uh, the first part of my notebook was done with four Prismacolor pencils because I didn't have money to buy more. So I would have a yellow, you know, cyan, uh, uh, magenta, um, yellow, and very little else. And I used to do flesh colors and everything with those four, four little colors. And, and uh, later I could afford a 12 Prismacolor and then eventually acrylics. I went insane, alcohol <laughs> markers, and I taught myself all the techniques. Uh, about a year ago, my wife suggested that we took a drawing class formally together, and I, I said, fine. But I was ready to kill myself by the second class. So I was like, yeah, 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 I know that, what else? And so I don't know, I would love to learn, but I'm impatient and, and abominably vocal about it, I guess. So, but so I would love to, I would so love to draw. Would you ever be interested in putting on like a display of your art? You can see things. you can see the the notebooks on the DVDs. Okay. I include some of the pertinent pages on the DVDs. Hellboy 2, Hellboy 1, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. They have some of those drawings. I don't think they are really really very good, but they are really good concepts. Yeah. You know, I mean, drawn by a guy that is self-taught. <laughs> you know, so they are okay. But uh, mercifully, the people that executed them were much more talented and educated. Amazing. Thanks, great question. If you could hand the mic just here. Hi there. Um, so I believe with The Devil's Backbone and with Pan's Labyrinth, these were the first two parts in what you see as a trilogy on um, the, the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. Do you have a, a, a concept, a storyline for the third one? Do you still intend to make that? Or do you have any idea when you're likely to? I don't know if I'll ever do it, but I do have a, a really great story for the third one, which is called 3993. And it's essentially uh, a 
a really it's a very brutal uh, story that that deals with the um, time collapsing. You know, it's really it's not supernatural, but it has a fantastic element in it. And you know, if I can, I'll, I'll do it I'll, or I'll produce it. But I, I don't know if I'll get to it. Uh, you know, depends on my uh, lymph nodes and if I don't get uh, <laughs> any of those diseases that I had at seven. But, uh, you know, if I may ask one more thing about visuals, you know, a lot of people call, um, you know, the blatant glib exercise of visuals is sometimes called eye candy. But I believe that uh, audio and visuals are part of the actual storytelling of a movie if they are done properly and not uh, in an irrelevant way or an arbitrary way. And I, I believe that becomes eye protein. And that you can actually, you are telling a huge portion of the movie w with elements that are alien to the screenplay or the dramaturgy. So did that answer your question? Absolutely. All right, excellent. Amazing, thank you. That was I think great. trilogies are dangerous if, you, if you're not coming from a place of, of uh, uh, absolute certainty of where, we're, where you're going with them. You know, you can blab and say, I'm going to do it. Uh, but uh, if you are slightly unsure, you know, there's nothing nothing to it. We all remember Return of Not the Jedi. Yeah. Well, well, my only addition to that really is, do you feel that there was anything left uncovered that you wanted to when you when you started this? I mean, You mean on the, on the Spanish Civil War? Yeah. Yes, I mean, the Spanish Civil War uh, could be, could have 65 movies about it and have a lot to be said about it. I, the, the ideas I have for it, or what I come to believe, uh, are not properly expressed in neither of the films, because it would need a completely different approach. I, one of the ideas I have, and I believe firmly, is that the Spanish Civil War was a complete, absolute prelude to World War II, and therefore is incredibly important in world history. But I cannot deal with that uh, in a proper way without uh, hijacking the other side of the story which has the fantastic elements. Just, just in closing, I just wanted to say the, the, the way that I think it was dealt with in Pan's Labyrinth was quite, um, was very impactful because being such a fantastical and, and, and beautiful movie, but with such sharp and very bold and, and no, quite striking you. elements, it does actually, it's unsettling in, in a way that I imagine you wanted it to be, and it's, it yeah. makes for a phenomenal and very impactful movie. Yeah, so I, I, was showing, I was showing Pan's Labyrinth during the Oscar race. I went to a small town near Los Angeles where there's a high concentration of Academy voters. And we knew that one particular screening was going to be incredibly heavy on Academy voters. And, and somebody got up at the end and said, you realize that by having that violence, you, you are hijacking your chance at an Academy Award. I said, that's fine. You know, mm -hmm. it's, I wanted to do that movie. And if that movie doesn't get an Oscar, I'm happy with it. You know, well, what would be tragic is to get an Oscar for a movie you didn't want to do that way. Absolutely. You know, and, and, I, and I have a, uh, there was a very powerful guy, a uh, very powerful producer, saw the movie when I just finished it, and he said, this, this is really great, but if you could cut the violence to a minimum, then children would enjoy it. I said, yeah, but I wouldn't. <laughs> so, you know, I, I got this fat by eating meringues when I shouldn't eat meringues, and, and it's because I'm very stubborn both in film and meringues. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, here, here. Great question. So. Good evening, Guillermo. Hola. Um, my question is, as a horror fan and as someone who has a fascination with monsters, um, it's recently been announced that when you finally escape Middle-earth, um, you will be making uh, Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and yeah, Mr. Yeah, yeah. And, and I wonder how excited you are to, to get a chance to take on some of the, 
the best known and most iconic monsters and, and, and what you feel you'll bring to those familiar stories? Well, I, uh, the first thing is I, 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 will, I will never escape Middle Earth. Uh, you know, I will, I will <laughs> forever live there after The Hobbit because it's a, I really want to forever inhabit it. It's, and and uh, it's not an escape, it's a reluctant exile if it happens. You know, I really would love to stay and live in New Zealand. Uh, I, I like it that much. It's, 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 it's truly paradise on Earth. But if I, if I do Frankenstein the way I want to do it, my idea is to try and tackle the breadth of the novel, which has always been condensed into in, in a way that I don't feel serves the tale as it was written. And um, it's been my favorite book of all times and my favorite creature of all times, the, the creature, the monster, is my favorite creature of all times. And um, you know uh, whether I will improve upon what is already there, which is allegedly in my book one of the best, if not the best, film ever made, which is James Whale's Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it remains to be seen, but I think that ambition is always laudable. And you fail for an ambitious project, it's better than to fail for a project that conforms with the usual shed you get on the screen. You know, so it's better to fail at trying something grand than to reside uh, impeccably in a little hole in the ground, you know, that, that, that was made for you. That's the story in The Hobbit for me. This is a guy that understands how big the world is, Bilbo, and comes back and all of a sudden uh, the place he came from has a place in the world. He feels differently about it. And learning how big the world is is taking risks. He's facing dragons and, and, and uh, going into a, a, an adventure that you may not go back to comfort with. So let's see. It's a huge adventure, Frankenstein. You obviously mentioned The Hobbit there and uh, the world of risk it represents. Yeah. I mean, for you as a director, is this another level of pressure and expectation? Uh, I mean, you started out making very small films and now you're making possibly one of the biggest films of all time. I, is that hard on you in any way? I don't know. It is because I, 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 I do feel anxiety and responsibility, but I feel it within reason because I, 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 I met the book when I was 11 years old. I met it, I fell in love with it. I normally don't read, uh, you know, um, my home uh, is organized in libraries. I have about six libraries in the house. The horror library is an entire room. Uh, science fiction is one bookshelf. Fantasy is three bookshelves. Because normally I don't go there. But The Hobbit is in, the, in those shelves. So you have to trust what you want. And I know it's gonna be horrible work, I'll be a slim young man by the time I finish that movie. I'll be size 30 and looking like Robert Pattinson. But, but I, I, I know that it's going to be worth it. Amazing. Yeah, because we all saw what happened to Peter Jackson. Hollowed yeah. him out from the inside. So. Well, I, I asked Peter what his diet was, and he said, King Kong. <laughs> I did say, how did you get so slim? He said, King Kong. God bless him. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Uh, reckon we've got time for a couple more questions. Young lady, and then... This gentleman here, this order. Going back to, to the writing, you said, you mentioned being un, uh, not very patient and like eager to do stuff and at the same time stubborn. Do you find that you have to really discipline yourself with the writing? Like, do you allocate time to write and that's it? I'm not leaving the room until I write mm. this amount or for this amount of time? Yeah, yeah. Did you, you see The Shining? 
<laughs> That's you. It's a little bit like when I say to my wife, when you hear that. You know, but that was, you know, we've been, we've been together 27 years, so that is a discipline that is agreed. You know, I, I, I go and I write and I have to generate a certain amount of work every day. And uh, it, let's say that you generate crap 70% uh, of the time. Still, to get to the good stuff, you have to generate the other 70%. You know, I, I think it's it's really m uh, a myth. Very few people can do everything great once in a bout of inspiration. I find that I have to work a lot to get there. As I was saying in the novel, I wrote a lot on the beginning, and I ended up either throwing it or rewriting it completely. So, you know, discipline is really important. Same as shooting a movie. You know, people think, oh, the, a director is a languid, creature that says, oh, I need this, I need that. Uh, and, and no, in reality, you have to wake up uh, three hours earlier than anyone, get to the set. You have to know that it's not about one day you have a good idea and it made it. It's 130, 140, 200. In the case of The Hobbit, 370 something days of shoot. And every day you have to have great ideas every time somebody asks you something. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of discipline. It's not a matter of spending it all uh, in the first day of shooting. So all of it is discipline. Do you then find yourself um, almost letting the writing take over you without thinking? So you start writing and rather than disciplining yourself as you write, you just write, write, write and then Yeah, yeah, you have to go places. Like, uh, let me give you an example. The opening, the opening 10 minutes of Pan's Labyrinth, I wrote over three months, again and again and again. It and was again. worth it. Every day. But I didn't find a way. I opened with a narration that was like a Jorge Luis Borges story. You know, the, the pit lies at the center of the labyrinth. There are 77 niches that are equally. And I, I, you know, it was all this crap. I was going this way. I was going that way. And all of a sudden, I came up with the idea of the blood going backwards into her nose. And I said, that's the perfect metaphor for her living and not dying. And, and I started writing, and then I wrote the whole screenplay uh, in a course of eight, eight weeks. You know, but it took three months uh, for me to crack, crack those pages. Then I, those eight weeks, I rewrote over six months more, <laughs> or even more than that. But, but the first pass was that quick. What I find is really useful if you can do it is I write the biographies of the characters before I write the screenplay. So for example, in The Hobbit, I have biographies according to canon, but also whatever is not in the canon, I try to fill five to eight pages of where the character was before the, uh, the occurrence and after the occurrence, meaning if he survives the movie, what happens to that character after or, and what was happening before. And you go into the pages with a lot of fluidity and you know what you're trying to prove. How they react to yeah. a lot, yeah. Thank Amazing. Did that answer the question? Absolutely, right. thank, thank you. you. What, what an insight. And um, we have one final question. I'm gonna be standing because I'm yeah, too, stand. too fat to walk sit. Walk around, you know, I like to walk <laughs> around. Absolutely. Sorry. Um, question about music. Oh, yeah. Um, do you pick your composers, why and how? I do, I, otherwise uh, it will be quite disastrous. I, I, I love music uh, and I mostly, other than the Beatles and progressive rock, which I, you know, I, I, I'm a creature of the 70s, uh, sadly, you know, I, I, I listen mostly, 85% of the time I'm listening to movie music. Uh, Preisner, Goldsmith, 
Wojciech Killer, Michael Nyman, uh, you name it. I'm, I'm listening to that. And uh, I have a very specific take on what the movie sounds like. So, you know, I, I think uh, I always try to find, like, for example, Javier uh, Navarrete, who did the uh, Devil's Wagon and Pan's Labyrinth. He, he was a composer that was very seldom used in Spain. There was one director that used him, uh, Agustí Villaronga. And other than that, he was a rarity. And I went to see Agustí Villaronga's movies, and I always loved the music. And one day, uh, originally, the music for Devil's Backbone was going to be written by uh, Alberto Iglesias, who composes for Almodovar. And uh, I don't know if he couldn't do it or he hated a joke I made. I'll never know. So I made a joke. I said, oh, your, your brother is so talented, Julio. And he hated the fucking <laughs> He hated it. He said, this guy is a moron. And I said, it's a joke. And he said, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> well, uh, but, but, you know, that happens. And, and I don't know how he got out of the commitment. And uh, I, I went and sat down on a movie called The Sea, Agustí Villaronga. And the music started. And I said, that's the guy. That's the guy. With Marco Beltrami, we started almost at the same time at the Miramax experience uh, back in the days of Mimic. You know, and uh, he had done Scream, but he wanted to do something more symphonic. And I, you know, started working with him. Danny Elfman has been my hero for so many years, and I wanted to work with him and so forth. And Howard Shore is, uh, you know, absolutely one of my references in, in what great music, movie music uh, sounds like. Absolutely. Amazing. So I'd like, I'd like to thank you for three things. Uh, first of all, for tonight. Thank it's you. been amazing having you and here. Tomorrow. And tomorrow. I think we all, well, we'll talk about that <laughs> afterwards. Okay. Um, it's been great having you. It really feels like a, a truly special event. So thank you so much for making that happen here. Uh, I'd like to thank you for your movies thank because you. everyone here will agree uh, you're a true visionary and you, you. You, you inspire us with your, with, with your films. And my figure. Of course. And finally, I'd like to thank you for being you, because everything I've read about you, all the interviews I've seen, and tonight's absolute confirmation, you're, you're one of these people. Robert Rodriguez, always, I always feel this about as well. When I yeah. hear you talking, it makes me want to make a film. It oh, makes me want to make music. You're so inspirational. You should fucking go out and do it. Yeah, well, I, I do. Absolutely. I do, fortunately. So. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you. Good night. I apologize for cursing. It's my second language. Can I help you? Thank you so much. I really This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store on London's Regent Street. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.